0: Well, once again, a very good evening to each and every one of you tuning in to this, our live stream service on this uh, very Saturday. Now, before we continue on with uh, the word of the Lord, I must just say that indeed we are glad that the government has decided to lack some of the uh, um, uh, restrictions that we are able to now come back next week. And I hope that you guys will be ready to come and worship the Lord back in the sanctuary next week. But before I begin sharing the word, I just want to take this opportunity also to wish each and every one of you in advance. Happy National Day, alright? So before we do that, let's now continue uh, with the word and I want to encourage us that as we look into the word this evening, it's a rather long chapter but I'm going to read Firstly, for the first seven verses, and then we will continue on with the rest of the verses as we move along in the sermon itself. So, we have your Bibles. Can I ask you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians as we continue on in our study on this book? (coughs) 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and I'll read the first seven verses. And the Apostle Paul writes, verse 1, he says, This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ." and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they found to be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart, that each one will receive his commendation from God. Verse 6, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favour of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you receive it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Let's bow our heads as we come to the Lord in prayer. Indeed, Father, as we begin the service with the song, as the dear pants For the water, we ask of you, Lord, that our soul pants after your living word. And so, Father, even as we gather this evening to listen to your word, your word of truth, we ask of you to prepare our hearts to receive them as good soil, so that as we receive them, we may plant it deep into our hearts that we may be obedient to what you have to say. So, Holy Spirit, once again, come into each and every one of us, wherever we may be, in our homes. In the place where we may be, Lord, speak to us as we give you this time. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. You know, back in the previous chapter, when the Apostle Paul posed this two question to his readers, "What then is Apollos? What is Paul?" And if you recall, his answer was simply servants of the Lord. And in this new chapter, he continues on with the theme of servanthood. But this time, however, we find that he goes into greater detail. This time, Paul highlights specifically the role played by a servant of God. Why? Well, very simply for two reasons. Firstly, it is the hope that once and for all, it will finally end the dispute between the preferences of leaders within the Corinthian assembly. You see, the intention is really to point out that it does not matter if one follows Paul's or whether you follow Apollos or Peter. Why? Because they are all under the same Master. They are all servants of the same Almighty God. The other intention, which is our focus for today, is to counter the Corinthians' judging or the evaluation of Paul as mentioned in verse 3 of this chapter. But whatever faults they were accusing or judging Paul of, however, it was not recorded. But we can probably guess that it has to do with the above-mentioned conflict between leaders, and, and we will soon find out also that it also perhaps because of his authority over them as revealed later on in this chapter itself. So we find that Paul starts off in this chapter with this remark. He says, This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. And you'll find that in this one verse alone, Paul shares this image of a servant or a steward. It's not a title of honour and glory, but rather it is one of lowliness. And you find that the Greek word oikonomos, this involves a picture of a slave in charge of the household, a person who manages everything for his master, but he himself owns nothing. And of course, a classic example of this is Joseph, the son of Jacob, who was sold to Egypt by his brothers and who eventually became the chief steward in Potiphar's house. You can find the story in Genesis chapter 39. So, you find that the responsibility then of a servant, the responsibility then of a steward is someone who is to be found to be trustworthy by his master. And so, if he's faithful to his master, he is considered to be a good servant. So, likewise, recognizing himself as God's servant, Paul maintains that he is accountable to no one but to God and God alone. He pleases no man but God. Thus, he tells us that what matters here is not whether he is highly gifted or popular as the way the Corinthians want to see him. It doesn't matter whether he could speak eloquently. It doesn't really matter whether he looks handsome, whether he's tall. It really doesn't matter at all. It doesn't even concern him whether Paul has more followers or whether Apollos is a better preacher the main issue for him is that as servants of Christ, have him been found trustworthy in the work that God has assigned to him. And what then is this work? Well, if you look again to verse 1, Paul says that it has to do with the mysteries of God. And this is a reference to the gospel message. So Paul, together with the other church leaders, as God's steward, the question is, have they been being entrusted with the spreading of the good news to the lost? Have they been found trustworthy in this assignment? Hence, you find that Paul says in verse 2 that it is a small matter. It is a small thing, a trivial matter that he is appraised by the Corinthians. You see, for Paul, it is far better to be accountable, it is far better to be judged by God for His faithfulness in fulfilling His commission than to be judged by man's flawed expectation. And when Paul uses this word judge in Greek, it simply means to be examined or to be scrutinized. And in life, you and I, we will face, we will encounter three types of judging. And it so happens that Paul mentions these three types of judging here. And the first type of judging is the judgment of man. He says in verse 3a, but with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. Paul was not upset. Paul was not concerned that people were evaluating him. He knew that as long as he was obedient to what the Lord required of him, it didn't matter what others thought of him. And church, this is a good advice for all of us to remember. The master's view of us is always, will always far outweigh that of man's view. So what God sees of you is more important than how others see you. And then Paul mentioned that there's also the judgment of the self. He continues on in verse 3. He says, in fact, <coughs> excuse me, I do not even judge myself. Why? Because you see, he realized that judgment of the self, like the judgment of man, can often be flawed as it is biased and thus not accurate. The more important judgment then the one that really counts for anything according to Paul is the judgment of God. Now when Paul says in verse 4 that it is the Lord who judges me, he's referring here to that final evaluation. He's referring here to that final day when Christ will come again and when Christ will evaluate each and every one of us And as disciples, we must stand before the judgment seat of Christ and we must give account to our lives. How have we been performing? Have we been trustworthy? Have we been faithful to the assignment that God gives to each and every one of us? That, according to Paul, is more important. The final judgment of God is more valid than the judgment of others or the judgment of the self. But after hearing this, it's important for us and it's, it's important for us to be careful You know that we do not use this verse to therefore say that, oh, you know, Paul is saying that uh, it's not important that, that others uh, 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 tell me that I'm wrong or to judge me. And, and, and so we calculate. The truth is this. The local church that we are in, the local church ultimately is a family. We are all a family. We are in the family of all saints. And the church is a place for honest and living and loving criticism. And members of the family must help each other to grow and to correct when someone is wrong. And as Paul wrote in Colossians 3 16, he says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and listening admonishing one another in all wisdom. So yes, though Paul says, you have no right to judge me, but at the same time, it is important for us to realize that if we are on our own, we can be wrong, and we need people to correct us when we fall or when we stray away. And the next thing is important for us also to bear in mind. That even though this may be a a, a license for us to tell each other when you're wrong, Paul tells us also that when we admonish each other, it must always be out of a heart of love. It must never be under the condition of condemning one another. Because you see, when the criticism is right and we do it out of love and when we receive it positively... This will only enable us to move in the correct way, however painful it may be. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God the Apostle Paul ends now this section with the word, therefore. And when you have this word, therefore, it is indicating that those, Paul is indicating that those, you know, after, after establishing the fact that, that he's a servant of the Lord and that, that, he's, and, and that what's more important is that he, he fulfills the word of, the, he fulfills his task that God has assigned to him and that God judges him. He now says, therefore, and he's trying to tell those, Corinthians, that if you still insist on wanting to judge me, he tells them that you better listen to these three rebukes. And what are the three rebukes? Firstly, he says that you judges, if you still insist on wanting to judge me, take note that you are judging God's servant at the wrong time. And it's already established Paul already says that it is the Lord Jesus, when He returns, He will be the one that will evaluate His servant's life, His servant's ministry, and His servant's faithfulness. God alone will be the judge who will determine if that leader is to be condemned or whether that leader is to have any commendation. And so Paul is saying here that those of you who still insist on passing judgment, you are actually playing God, and you are taking God's role. Next, Paul rebuke those who insist on judging Paul. He says that you are judging, if you want to judge me, you are judging by the wrong standards. He continues in verse 6. He says, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. You see, the Corinthian church were guilty. They were guilty of comparing ministers with one another by their own human standards, by their preferences, and by prejudice. We see all this in the early part of uh, this, this letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. But Paul says the only true basis for evaluation as indicated here is based on what is written. And what is written here is inferring to the Word of God. And so yet again, the question is being put forth. The question is being asked of Paul, have you therefore as God's servant been faithful in the preaching of the Word? Paul insists that this is the basis of God's judgment over them. That this is the basis of God's judgment for His servant. And finally, the Corinthians were also rebuked. Thirdly, for judging with the wrong motive. Verse, that last part of verse 6, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Now, this, this verb puffed up, is really a vivid image to describe the Corinthians' problem of excessive pride. You see, in, in their proudly supporting their own party, whether it may be Apollos, Peter, or whoever it may be, they were in fact tearing down the other party just to build up the man they prefer and support. Their motive was not at all spiritual. Why? Because in doing what they were doing, they are creating a friction. They were mooting for their own agenda and not for the purpose nor the will of God. And church, as we reflect over this, you know, let's be careful because it is so very easy for you and I as a church to be critical and to give command over everything and anything like the Corinthian Christians were doing. But here's the thing. We must be careful to avoid this very same mistake committed by them, especially when it comes to evaluating leaders appointed by God within the church. You see, on the one hand, we can be so indifferent that even when the leader is wrong, we don't do anything about it. And I've known cases where some churches, you know, they, 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 they hold high esteem to the church leader that even when the church leader does something that is so seriously wrong, they cover up for the church leader. So on the one hand, we can be like that. But on the other extreme, we can also fall into the trap of being, you know, hypercritical, that we criticize the pastor or over everything and anything. What you don't like about it, you criticize. So much so that you find that in the case of of, of Paul here, Paul failed the test of the Corinthians. And for us, we can be so prone to pass our judgment, our commands, and we can say things like this. Oh, I like Pastor A, you know, because he's more pastoral. Oh, I like Pastor B, because he's a better preacher. I don't like the current pastor because he never greets me. You know, church, Listen every pastor, every leader of God, and even you, you have your strength and you have your weaknesses. Isn't that true? And we cannot be compared one against the other. The warning from this chapter reminds us that leaders of the church are God's chosen servants appointed by Him. And we should reserve Judgment for God alone to make. Yes, you can say, <coughs> but if the pastor is not doing what I like, you know, or, 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 or you may find that the pastor is not doing the right thing. Yes, you can go up to him. You can share with him. But ultimately, if the pastor feels that this is the right way, though it may be the wrong way, guys, it is the Lord who would judge him. So let's learn not to make the same mistake as the Corinthians did. Let's stop any bickering or instigating a kind of, you know, a a, a revolt for not being supportive to the leadership that is given to us in the church. And you know, a beautiful picture of someone who's supporting the leadership, even though the leader is not a good leader, is that of King David. Remember King David, the second king of Israel? When God anointed him as the new king of Israel, King Saul was still in power. King David didn't say that, hey, I've been anointed king, I should go against King Saul. No. He didn't even instigate his men when his men wanted to, to, you know, wanted David to kill Saul when, when, when the opportunity came. And in one particular episode, in 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 16, Listen to what he told his men. He says this, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put my hand against Him, referring to Saul, seeing that He is the Lord's anointed. David recognized that Saul was God's anointed, even though Saul may have not been a good leader. David refused to create friction. David refused to to cause any sort of rivalry. He showed the example to his men to be obedient and to succumb to the leadership of Saul. And that's what we all need to do. We carry on now from verse 8 onwards. And as we look into your Bible in verse 8, we're going to read from verse 8 to verse 13 now. And Paul continues to say, Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honour, but we in this respite. To the present hour, we are hunger and thirst, we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labour, working with our hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and still are like the scum of the world, the refuge of all things. You see, in this next section, Paul now outlines his ministry as God's servant by painting several images. And the intention here is really to show the Corinthians that it is the outcome of his ministry that is how God is going to evaluate him by. And he begins by telling them that as a result of what he did, by sharing the good news with the Corinthians, they ended up rich. They ended up as kings. But contrast this to Paul. Paul describes himself as a spectacle to the world. In other words, he's pictured here like a conquered prisoner being exhibited. So actually, what Paul was doing here, he was using a rather familiar imagery in the Roman Empire to drive home this important point to the Corinthian church. You see, when the Romans were victorious from their battle, what they would do? They would parade their prisoners as a spectacle for their citizens to see. But the suggestion here is in a good way. God had won the victory and therefore, he made a public spectacle of his faithful servants as his trophy. You see, what God, you see what Paul was trying to say? Instead of being like the Roman soldier, you know, the, the prisoner who's, who's defeated, Paul is, in a sense, magnified because of what he has done. He has been obedient, he has been faithful, he has been trustworthy in carrying out the task that God has given for him. And so he's now being, together with the rest of the servants of God, they're now being paraded for others to see because they have been faithful in sharing in the mysteries of God. Hence, Paul was merely reminding the Corinthians that your status of being rich, your status as kings, is simply because he and the rest of God's servants have been faithful in a God-given assignment. And furthermore, he even says that as God's servant, they are pictured now as fools for Christ's sake. And as fools, they are weak and not strong. They are despised instead of being honoured. And then he further ends with a very strong language in verse 13, using yet a third image. He says now that they are the scamp of the world. And being scum of the world, they have to endure all sorts of trials and misfortunes like hunger, thirst, being poorly dressed, homeless, being persecuted, reviled, being slandered. And these, according to Paul, are the identifying marks of an authentic disciple and the basis for the appraisal of God's servant. And as we come now to verse 14, we notice now that Paul's tone changed abruptly. Paul writes in verse 14, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I Became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Verse 18, Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon. If the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. Verse 21, what do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? And so we find now in this last section, After reprimanding his readers, Paul now reaches out to them to embrace them as their father. And this is yet another picture of God's servant. God's servant is like a father. And whenever we share the gospel with someone and we eventually lead that person to the faith, you know what? We automatically become The spiritual father in life. We cannot say that the moment I bring Menghui to Christ, I wash my hand. You know, it is the church responsibility. No. Paul is teaching us that it is your responsibility to continue. And this is why our vision in the church is for us to live out this lifestyle of evangelism and this culture of discipleship. Because evangelism and discipleship goes hand in hand. And we find that as we do so, we establish this kind of a bond, and this is important, because the newly born Christians need to develop and grow. And again, if you remember last week, Paul was addressing this issue of maturity, isn't it? And so how do we move from immaturity to mature? How do we move from drinking milk to eating solid food? That's where discipleship comes in. And Paul has the right to be their spiritual father. Why? Because based on the very reason that he was the original founder of the church. He says in verse 15, For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. It is when he was found to be trustworthy in his God-given assignment when he shared the good news with the Corinthians and they came to know Christ. That's where he became a spiritual father to them. And what then is the role of a spiritual father? <coughs> Paul begins to state three things. Firstly, the role of a father is for admonishment. Now, I'm sure none of us here, we like to be admonished. But nevertheless, as a father, Paul is to reprove. Paul is to chastise them when they have gone wrong or they are strayed away. And again, it's important for us to take note that from Paul's command here, his intention for admonition was not to shame them, but it is the purpose to correct their behavior and their attitude. It was done out of love. Secondly, as a spiritual father, Paul's role was also to be an example to his flock. That's why in verse 16 he says, I urge you, be imitators of me. Now the direct meaning of this word being an imitator is to mimic, the idea is to mimic Paul's action. And we mustn't get this idea here that Paul, you know, was kind of exalting himself with this instruction. He wasn't kind of telling the the Corinthian, you know, I'm perfect, you better follow me. No. He was only a good example. Why? Because he himself was mimicking the greatest example that is found in Jesus. And that is why we find later on in chapter 11, verse 1, he says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So a father is to admonish those who are wrong. A father is to be an example to his flock. And finally, Paul says, a spiritual father's role is to discipline his flock. And you know, given the present situation, the turmoil that was going in the church, the division that was all around, we find that Paul was not able to end this section of his letter with an encouraging note. Why? Because he recognized that there was pride. And pride is indeed a terrible thing in the Christian life and church. We have seen the arrogance of the Corinthians. But here is also a clear suggestion that they are reputating Paul's authority. They were going against Paul's authority as an apostle of God. He says in verse 18 and 19, some of you are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. And then Paul warns that the time for, had come for him as a father to discipline his arrogant, stubborn, and disobedient flock. A faithful parent must discipline without fail his wayward child, no matter how painful it may be. To conclude then, you know this chapter opens up a couple of key issues that we cannot avoid as a church. And to sum up, we find that there's a serious concern regarding church authority and judging leaders within the faith community. Too often the church have blindly followed preachers and their doctrines. The church have mimicked politicians who constantly take polls to find out what's the best thing to do. But you know, as theologian Richard Hayes rightly commented, the church is not a democracy. The church is not a democracy. The church is accountable to another authority higher authority. And it's all too easy for church members to fall into this habit of thinking the pastor as their employee. Why? Because they justify that they pay the tithes, and so are not obliged to follow. And this is perhaps the reason why we find that Paul refused financial aid from the Corinthians, as we will see later in chapter 9. But for us to be that strong and healthy church, we ought to support the leadership wholeheartedly. And Paul, addressing this issue to Titus, in Titus chapter 3, verse 1, he says this, Remind them, referring to the church, remind them to be submissive to who? To rulers and authorities, to be obedient. So church, we need, first and foremost, we need to have this right perspective of church authority and judging the leadership. A second major issue that is posed here has to do with the cultural norms of the time that we live in. We have already seen how in the past sermons, Paul was against this popularized version of the Corinthians boasting of their self-sufficiency and inhuman wisdom. And as it is pointed out, we are to depend only on God's grace and God's grace alone and not on this human wisdom. Our lives must be conformed to the pattern of the cross. And at the same time, we must remember why Paul is attacking this cultural norm. Simply because it was splitting the assembly of God. When people continue to you know, support worldviews, that's where the church of God is separated. And so today we must ask ourselves, what are the cultural norms that are breaking up the church of God? There are many, but I don't want you to miss this. Whatever it may be, behind each of them is the root of what is called hedonism. And what is hedonism? It is the belief that the highest good is the pursuit of the individual's pleasure and need. To put it very simply, it is simply saying this, I will only engage in the things that interest me. I will only engage what God wants me to do if it benefits me. It's all about me. Otherwise, don't bother to involve me at all. (laughs) So if i have to ask you, hey, I need someone to be in ECC. Oh, what has it got to do with me? Is there any benefit for me? If there's no benefit, I won't join. I need people to come into the worship team. I need people to lead cell group. What does it benefit me? If it doesn't benefit me, don't involve me. Hedonism has infiltrated and even corrupted the church in many ways. In whom we want to support as leaders in the church, in our attitudes about sexual behaviors as we will see next week in chapter 5, and as I already mentioned, in simple things like serving in a ministry, where we come to think that this means making me feel good and comfortable, only then I will commit. But if we are to grow, if all things is to grow to be that strong and vibrant and healthy church, all these things have to go. We need to remove the jealousy, the strife that can cause division. We need to refrain from judging God's appointed leader and be submissive to the authority set by God. And instead, what we need to do is we need to be gathered as one, We need to be in unity. I just want to end. This very interesting thing happened this morning. (coughs) Carl, for those of you who are, you know, in the leadership chat group, you realize that Carl sent this morning a WhatsApp chat. (coughs) WhatsApp message, rather. Paul, Carl didn't know about the message that I'm going to share. But listen to what he says. He he, He felt need to share with the leadership in the church about unity. He says that years ago, he was speaking to a friend of his who was not a Christian, and his friend told him this, and I quote, I don't understand. You Protestants and you Catholics, you look exactly the same to me. You both have church buildings that look the same. You both say the Lord's Prayer and do stuff with bread and wine. Whatever it is you disagree about has absolutely nothing to do with my life. And then he says this, However, while you are fighting each other, I am not interested. You see, when the world sees that the church is disunited, we can't even support our leaders. There's disunity. We are a bad testimony. We are a bad witness to those around us. And you know, this unity is so damaging to the church. That is why Jesus recognized the need for unity. And that is why before He went up to heaven, He prayed this prayer in John 17 verse 23. That this church may be united as one. And if you recall, even in Corinthians chapter 1 verse 10, Paul prayed that we should be perfectly united as one. United Unity is that core of our faith. We believe in God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The unity. The unity is never disunited. They're always together as one. But this unity, on the other hand, has always been the curse of humankind ever since Adam and Eve fell into sin. But Jesus brought this reconciliation. Jesus brought this unity when He died on the cross. So today, church, if we truly desire for all things to grow, let's put aside all these things. Let's come together as one and let's replace all these negative things with the agape love.